Hello, this is Peter Woolfolk. First, let me say thank you so much for being a listener. Now, I want to alert you to our shiny new podcast website located at podpage.com. However, you can go directly to the podcast site located at www.publicrelationsreviewpodcast.com. There, you can contact me through email. You can leave a voice message. You can leave a review. You can read an episode blog and frequently learn about the podcast guests. You might also want to suggest podcast topic ideas or even suggest a guest. You can also let me know if you would like to receive our podcast listener logo that you can post on your social media. So I look forward to hearing from you about our new podcast website, www.publicrelationsreviewpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Public Relations Review Podcast and have a great day. Welcome. This is the Public Relations Review Podcast, a program to discuss the many facets of public relations with seasoned professionals, educators, authors, and others. Now, here is your host, Peter Woolfolk. Welcome to the Public Relations Review Podcast and to our listeners all across America and around the world. Now, question. What is required for PR professionals to be successful at international communications and working remotely? Well, my guest today is a dynamic public relations practitioner with several years of international experience. She is passionate about how to connect and build relationships with people of various cultures. She has worked in Frankfurt, Germany, London, England, Salt Lake City, and other cities in the United States. She currently works as Corporate Communications Supervisor at DigiCert, managing corporate communications in Europe, their global blog, and social media. Now, in addition, she is pursuing her APR in the Spring 2023 cohort and recently completed a master's degree in international business and communication at Oxford Brooks University. She is a graduate of Brigham Young University, where she also served as the president of PRSSA. Joining me today from London, England, is Amelia Meckham. So, Amelia, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for having me. So, tell me, really, let's talk about your journey. How did you, what steps did you take? What led you to get into this um, international communications? Your, your progress from, from your graduation from uh, Brigham Young to now being there at DigiCert. Right. So, when I was in my undergrad at, at Brigham Young University, I was, I was very interested in studying abroad. And I did a few different study abroads and then culminated in my internship in Frankfurt, uh, where I was able to work in Germany for a summer. And that international experience really got me interested in learning more about working in different cultures. And I came back to university and finished with a um, minor in global management. Um, and then from there, I kind of knew that I wanted to get back into working and living in another culture. So I was reaching out to find out different resources. And, and keep in mind, this is also right in the middle of a pandemic hit um, as I was looking to move over here. 
Um, so definitely a big challenge there. But I found a great service called Across the Pond, and they help connect students in the U.S. to universities in the U.K. And from there, I was able to narrow down my list to Oxford Brooks, knowing that I wanted to study international business and intercultural communication and kind of enable the lifestyle that I wanted of living in a different culture, learning and being immersed in it. I studied different culture theory along with business and communication and now living in. So what I completed, I, I moved over with DigiCert while I was doing my master's. I uh, was able to work with the company here. I was working for them in Salt Lake City uh, and luckily they had an office here that I was able to transfer to. Uh, and I've just, I've completed my master's, but now I'm staying over here in, in London. And while I'm over here, I have been working specifically with our PR agency based in London. Um, and we've developed sort of a view and spoke model. Um, we're a pretty small communication team, but we cover globally, we cover four regions, North America, Latin America, Europe, APAC, Japan. Um, and so our model for that is we have a agency of record here in London that I coordinate with, uh, and then our agency in London coordinates with smaller bespoke agencies in local countries. So we have contacts in France, Germany, Switzerland, the Netherlands, etc., and we're able to be more agile and reach more cultures that way. So even though we're a small team, it's important to us that we have people on the ground, local PR people, who are actually immersed in the culture, natives, have relationships with the journalists there, and able to do what they need. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's... Oh, go ahead. No, I was about to ask you just what mm-hmm. sort of business is DigiCert in? DigiCert is a leading provider of digital trust. We offer products that help secure digital communication. Um, and that could be everything from websites to devices, users and authentication, digital document signing, etc. Mm-hmm. So how long have you been in London now? I've been living here for a year and a half. Okay. Uh, now that you've had this experience, what are the significant differences that you've experienced in terms of how communications or public relations is handled? Or is there any significant difference? Yeah, I would say there are some minor differences. So if we look at at culture three, for instance, culture is always on a scale. It's always comparing one culture to another culture. And on a global scale, the U.S. and the U.K. are actually quite similar compared to most countries. And culture theory was kind of led by Gert Hofstede, who came out with several culture scales. But one of my favorites, Erin uh, Meyer, she has developed a little bit more on Hofstede theories, and she has eight different scales that we can use to measure culture. One of them is communication, one is feedback, thinking, leadership, decision-making, trust, how we disagree, and how we do time. So I'll focus on communication because I think that's most relevant for PR practitioners. But it is worth looking into the, the other scales of culture as well. The communication can either be low context or high context. Low context communication is very straightforward. It can be seen as as very blunt. Uh, Basically, the words that we say are exactly what we need. Mm -hmm. High context communication, on the other hand, is a little bit more nuanced. There's a lot more meaning in how something is said and and the body language of it, for instance. 
Um, high context cultures are often thought of in, in Asian cultures, whereas low context is often thought of in, you know, Dutch culture. They can be known as very blunt. The U.S. is pretty low context. So in general, uh, Americans prefer to communicate directly. Mm-hmm. The U.K. is a little bit more high context, though, than the U.S. is. Some of the Brits prefer a little bit less direct. For instance, they might say something like, um, I'm hearing what you're saying, but I'm not sure how I feel about it. What, what they really mean is, uh, I think what you're saying is ridiculous. I completely disagree. Okay. Uh, so there's a little bit more <laughs> translation, <laughs> you know, to the bridge. Their form of communication can be a little bit confusing at first for, for Americans who are, are used to very direct style of communication. But that's why it's so important, I think, to have people in a local culture to partner with people who are native. So even though I studied, you know, I have two degrees now where I studied culture theory and I lived and immersed myself in the local culture, um, I still am not able to pick up all the nuances as if I was able to live and be a native of that culture. So that's why we partner with local agencies. You know, that makes a lot of sense to me when you say uh, cultural differences. I was probably last year sometime I I did a a podcast on um, how to market to Asian Americans. And uh, the fellow, uh, Michael Soon Lee, who actually did that, uh, he said that's hugely important that people need to understand the culture first and they need to understand it from people who are actually involved in it. You know, rather than uh, thinking that, uh, you know, you can do things there or uh, with that group uh, the way you do with the, uh, the U.S. Uh, and if you because if you don't, you can have some very serious uh, unintended consequences and the wheels just may completely come off of your campaign. Yeah. And, you know, I'll give you a really famous example of that. Disney Paris. So when Disney Parks decided to launch in Europe, they selected Paris as the location because it was fairly central and often trafficked by, uh, you know, tourists. Uh, but when they launched Disney Paris back in the day, they didn't consider all the cultural nuances that they should have um, because they had previously launched Disney in Tokyo and, and it had gone over really well there. And so they thought, oh, we, we can just copy and paste the Disney park from, you know, California, Tokyo to, to Paris. And then it should go well, right? Well, no, it, it didn't. It actually went terribly. The local French people really rejected the idea of Disneyland. It wasn't their idea of fun to spend all day in line or to eat their food on the go. Like Americans do, they, the French prefer a sit-down meal. Um, and additionally, the, you know, when the French go on vacation, they, they prefer like south of France. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a multi-million dollar mistake that Disney made by launching in Paris without considering this. Uh, eventually they were able to, you know, I think partner with somebody local in the culture to understand those changes that they needed to make, adding in more restaurants, adding in more languages, so things were in French rather than English first. Um, and now Disney Paris is, is doing fine, but you know, even the big companies like Disney have, have gotten it wrong in the past. Mm-hmm. 
Well, unfortunately, that happens to uh, quite a few people, even locally, that uh, you can go from one culture to another and uh, think that one size fits all. And that's a huge, huge area that hopefully people have come to grips with right now and see that uh, there is a need to have somebody from that particular culture to guide you along the way just to prevent you from uh, completely ripping your shorts, you know, trying to get something done. No, I'd love to ask you, what has been the biggest hurdle that perhaps you have begun to, uh, that you had to climb and, and uh, to reach a level of comfort there? My biggest hurdle to reaching a level of comfort here in the UK, I would say probably building up that community. Whenever you move, make a big move internationally, it can be very jarring. But it was especially hard, I think, because I moved in 2021 now. So that was right still in the pandemic and there was still some lockdown happening but through you know networking through meeting other people and mingling with locals that i was able to build a community not just of other americans here or other brits here but lots of people from all different cultures all over the world and that's one thing i really appreciate about london is that yes there are a lot of british and there are a lot of other americans but it really is a melting pot from all over. Mm-hmm. And that's something I think pretty unique. Well, you find that in most big cities, but um, creating that community, I think, is, has been important to me. One of my personal goals is to travel to 100 different countries. Um, and I love meeting people from all over the world so I can get different recommendations, different views of, of their culture and how they view things. And so I just recently hit 30 countries that I've traveled to. I'm almost a third of the way there. Well, you know, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about it because it was years ago, but I've also spent maybe about a week in London, but also lived in Germany for a while and uh, got a chance to get down to Austria, uh, things like that. So uh, it's just fascinating to be able to travel around. The other thing I found, you mentioned uh, being in Germany, one of the things I found over there was very quickly that most Germans speak English. And the caveat is, if they want to, <laughs> because if they don't like you, <laughs> they, they won't speak English. But most of them, most Europeans can speak two languages, and English is certainly one of them. Yeah, I would say we are at quite an advantage, and that is something I have, I have recognized. A lot of privilege of being Eng- native English-speaking, being American, we're able to travel pretty freely and go somewhere, and uh, it's a safe assumption that the majority of people will, will speak English. But that's definitely, I think, a, a privilege that we have. Um, I, but I'm, I love travel. And like I said, I think it's important for everyone to get out. And that's because it's hard to appreciate and understand your own culture if you've never experienced and seen other ones. There's a great metaphor of culture is kind of like a fish in water. For everyone outside of that water, it's very obvious that the fish is swimming in water. But for the fish itself, if you asked it what water is, it would be like, I don't know. Uh, That's how culture is, you know? Mm -hmm. If if you ask someone who's always lived in that water and always in that culture their whole life to describe their culture, it's going to be pretty difficult for them to do so. But if I ask you, for instance, to describe German culture after your, your visit to Germany, you'd be able to say, oh, well, you know, they do things differently. Their time is so important to them. They're, they're much more on time than Americans. And their communication is, is even more direct than we are in America. And, and you can notice those when, when you leave the fish out of water, for instance. You can notice those things easier. Mm-hmm. 
So, so getting back to the to the PR side of things uh, over there, even though you work with an agency, uh, in terms of have you had an opportunity to see how they go about pitching a news release or dealing with reporters over there or through your agency? Is there any significant differences how it's handled there as compared to here? Um, I'm not really sure if there's any significant differences. There has been a lot of change, I think, in recent years, and this is not unique to over here, but just because we're seeing fewer and fewer journalists on staff, and they're expecting to put out more and more content per person. Um, so the, the workload on the journalists is heavier than ever before. And that is something that we are very mindful of over here in Europe as well, especially because there, there may be one journalist covering all of the UK or all of one of our specific markets, at least in the the tech trade publications that we work with. Um, so we just are always trying to be very mindful of their workload. But I, I think I don't know that that is necessarily unique to Europe versus the U.S. Okay. Now, you had also mentioned uh, some experience working remotely. What are the differences uh, in your remote work uh, that you, or what, have you been your experiences as you work remotely? Yeah, so I... I mean, I'll admit personally, I love remote work. I do work hybrid currently two days a week in person and three days a week remote, which I think is a great balance. But actually, for my dissertation, I studied this exact topic because I was watching over here in the UK this movement during the pandemic of the great resignation, and I wanted to understand impact that remote work um, and this you know, reevaluation of work-life balance was leading to the, the great resignation. And also, I had have a bit unique perspective because I would say that work-life balance over here in the UK and in Europe in general is a little bit more work fits into life, not life fits into work. And I would say American culture in general, obviously this is generalization, not for everyone, but in general, Americans put work at a higher priority Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a video circling around during the pandemic about jokes about this. You see, like, an American out of office notices, I'm out of office, I'm in the hospital, but I will be back in the office in two hours, <laughs> versus the Europeans. And all of August, you're like, you basically can't catch any of them because they're all on holiday for two, three weeks at a time at the beach, and they just say, I will delete all my emails when I come back. So it's a very different approach to work life. So having said that, when I was approaching my dissertation, I wanted to understand the work-life balance and how remote work fit into that. I found some really interesting insights. So I used my company as a, as a case study and met with a lot of different people to understand their motivation for work during the pandemic. Uh, and a lot of people talk about the pandemic as this great reset button. It was basically an opportunity for them to reevaluate their priorities, their values in life. And a lot of them decided that they wanted, you know, different things out of work and different things out of life. Some of that came a little bit of generational insight. So Gen Z was widely entering the labor market during the pandemic. So a lot of them, Gen Z, entered the labor market with remote work in place. Mm -hmm. And I think... The future of remote work will have a lot to do with their generation and their attitudes towards remote work. Will they want to continue it? Will they want to 
go back to fully in person? What will their attitudes be? Um, and studies right now are showing that across different generations, the majority of workers estimate spending the majority of their work week remote. So I think hybrid work is still a very big part of the conversation and probably the best solution we have right now, but it could change in the future. And there's a couple of things at play there as well. And I don't want to say that um, you know, work-life balance was the only thing that was affecting the great resignation during the pandemic because there were a lot of factors at play there. One other interesting factor at play was the, the labor market switching in bargaining power from the employer having a lot of bargaining power to the employee. Mm-hmm. And the reason that happened was because of the supply demand for once in a long time in history. Suddenly there was a lot of demand for labor, but less supply. And the reason for that is, you know, various people were exiting the workforce, deciding to retire. People were, you know, moving abroad. People were taking their side hustles full time and becoming entrepreneurs, leaving corporate America, et cetera, et cetera. So suddenly there was all this demand for labor and low supply and basic economics. Anyone who has done Econ 101 can understand what supply demand it created this unique labor market where employees had the upper hand in negotiations. Uh, but they weren't just negotiating, negotiating for higher salaries. They were also negotiating for better working conditions. Mm-hmm. So if we look at like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, once those salary negotiations are, are met, then they're looking for higher level uh, needs to be met. So they're looking for the opportunity to grow in their career, learning and development opportunities, flexible working conditions, that, that better work-life balance. And I really kind of boiled that down to the top three factors that I kept hearing over and over again from my interviewees. Um, and those top three were, were the better compensation, possibility of growth, and flexible working conditions. And I think that in this post-pandemic world, if employers are looking to better retain their employees, to better attract new employees, those three factors are going to be key for them to focus on. Mm -hmm. Well, let me say, according to some of the readings that uh, I have about people who have, uh, as you call in some cases, early resignations or quiet resignations, that sort of thing, that certainly is um, a on their list of things, you know, better compensation, better growth opportunities is very, very important to people. No question about it. Right. Yeah. I, I don't think it's, it's all that surprising that that is what people are looking after. But it, it is interesting, I think, when you see how the pandemic played with that and how remote work and the interesting label, labor marketing supply demand kind of enabled that negotiation power. And in tech specifically, especially with software developers during the pandemic, they had like an incredible amount of bargaining power because there was just incredibly high demand for software developers specifically. And I have, I mean, I've been following as well since the pandemic, obviously a lot of my research, a lot of new developments have happened since my research, including all the massive layoffs we've seen in tech and there is a little bit of shifting, I think, the negotiation power back from employee to the employer. Mm-hmm. But that being said, we also are still seeing 
hybrid work persist even beyond that. Even with all these massive layoffs, um, hybrid work is still quite popular. So I, I don't know, I, if I were to make a prediction, I would say it's still around to say for a while. I don't know if it, it will, remote work will be here forever, but if I were to predict, I'd say it's gonna be a while and the future of it will really heavily be impacted by Gen Z and also Gen Alpha as they enter the workforce. Mm-hmm. Well, another way of looking at it is that I think the pandemic perhaps got people an opportunity to release or for workers to find out that these are some of the hidden desires of the employees. You know, better compensation, treat me well, opportunities to grow that perhaps had not been looked at as part of the regular uh, workforce uh, growth opportunities there. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's interesting because that great resignation movement, it wasn't just happening in the U.S. Although I would say it probably started in the U.S. and um, it's still kind of going on there. You know, if you've seen what's happening with Starbucks employees and unionizing there, it's still going on. But it is also happening on a global scale as well. There's definitely some movements of the Great Resignation over here in the U.K. and in Europe and, and, and in China. There is this whole like lay flat movement. The working culture over in uh, Asian countries can be a little bit more extreme, even more extreme than it is in, in the U.S. Because, again, it's all a scale, right? So mm-hmm. from my perspective and where I sit on the cultural scale towards values of work, I would say that Asian working cultures are a little bit more extreme. And they are often not uncommon to see someone over there napping at their desk. I recently saw an ad for a desk chair that turned into a bed. And it's almost a sign of, of honor if you're napping at your desk. It means you're a really, really hard worker. Whereas over here, we'd say, like, oh, that's crazy. Like, you're napping at your desk. Go home. Mm. <laughs> like, you need to take more rest. But that great resignation, it, it was it was global. It, it, and I saw it affecting all different cultures, even with different attitudes towards work and different cultures. The, the great resignation was global. Okay. Well, Amelia, as we begin to wind down, uh, if uh, some some of our listeners are considering, uh, also like you did, to want to work uh, in a foreign nation, what are some of the, let's say, the top three things that you would advise them to do to prepare themselves uh, for that journey? Top three things to do before going to work in a foreign nation. I would say, number one, make sure you familiarize familiarize yourself with some culture theory, understand different communication models um, and how those affect different cultures. Is it high context, low context? How direct should you be? How how does this culture view time? Do you need to be right on time or can you be late? Um, A great resource for that is The Culture Map by Erin Meyer. Great book. Um, She also has a personal culture tool so number two, I would I would suggest you use personal culture tool to understand your personal culture and where that falls. Um, interestingly enough, when I took my personal cultural tool about a year after moving here to the UK, I found that my personal culture has shifted a bit, and I am a little bit in the middle between the US and the UK. So where I fall on the communication scale, for instance, not quite as low context as the U.S., but nor am I quite as high context as the U.K. I'm somewhere in the middle. Um, so understanding your personal culture of how you communicate in, in 
relation to the country you're from and the country you're visiting is, is incredibly important. So that would be number two. And then number three, I would say you need to connect with some locals. Meet some professionals in the area. There are definitely different ways that you can connect with locals through you know, social media, online groups, your own professional network. I think it's really important to create a community in the local area that you're going so you can get the, the local perspective, which will be so much richer and so much more understanding than just being a tourist in, in a location. <laughs> so again, those three things that people can do. They can understand culture theory, do a little research on Aaron Meyer and Gert Hofstede. Number two, they can understand their personal culture. How do you communicate and how does that relate to the culture you're going to? And number three, they can meet with someone local, understand them, and, and kind of get to know a little local flavor. And if you're coming to London, I may not be a native Londoner, but I am still local and I would be more than happy to continue the conversation with anyone um, over a coffee chat or even over email. Well, good. Well, thank you so very much. Uh, my guest today has been Amelia Meckham, and she joined us from London, England. And uh, it was a great opportunity to listen and uh, benefit from your experience of having worked uh, in London and Germany and the benefits that you've shared with our listeners today. So I really, really appreciate your coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks again, Peter. Okay. And to my listeners, if you've enjoyed the show, we'd certainly like to get a great review from you. If you'd like to get in touch with us to let us know about some topics you have that you think we should cover, uh, go to the Public Relations Review Podcast website, uh, drop us a note, and uh, we'll certainly get back to you. But in the meantime, thank you so much for listening, and join us for the next edition of the Public Relations Review Podcast. This podcast is produced by Communication Strategies an award-winning public relations and public affairs firm headquartered in Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you for joining us. Hi, this is Peter Woolfolk speaking. Now, first of all, thank you so very much for listening to the podcast. Now, I am very excited to let you know that the podcast is now available on Amazon Alexa. You know the drill. Simply say, Alexa, play Public Relations Review Podcast, and she'll take it from there. And again, thank you for listening. And if you enjoy the program, please become a subscriber. Now, on to the podcast.